Um, and, uh, and so we'll meet there and we'll, we'll talk. And the meeting should be relatively brief. It's just uh, giving out dates and, and expenses and things. Um, so, so as you're on your way out, you're walking past the table, you sign up. If you are interested in Zambia, you go down the hall and you learn more. And, uh, and that's, so yeah, that'll be the, the early afternoon today. Uh, Matthew chapter five is where we're gonna be reading from. And then we're going to, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna pray. We're gonna be praying. Uh, for interestingly named the uh, the sonar people, this has nothing to do with echolocation. They are a um, a subgroup of uh, Hindu people in India, eight million of them throughout the world. Um, so uh, they have the complete Bible in their language, but they are completely unreached. And so we're going to be praying for them as we uh, we ask the Lord to bless His His Word. Matthew five says this. In verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You must therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here and to hear your word. And uh, we thank you for, for giving us the time and the ability and the freedom to set aside this time that we might hear your word. And we ask that you would speak to us. Father, uh, we are not like the Sonar people of India who eight million of them, uh, though the Bible is in their word, they cannot hear it. We thank you for the blessing of being able to hear. We pray that, that, that you would send workers among them that they might hear. Lord, we... We are those who can hear your word, and so the, the, the difficulty that we face is that we might choose to ignore it or to harden our hearts. We pray that you would soften us now. Uh, we pray that instead of, of having our shields up to defend ourselves against what you will say to us, that, that we would soften our hearts, that, that we might say, yes, that's, that's me. Father, I pray that, that you would remove all false guilt and condemnation from among us that, that we might know ourselves truly and not, not just get underneath the weight of the law, but understanding that we've been delivered by Jesus from our sins, that we're called to live in a different way. And may we, as your people, embrace the truth and then live not, not out of condemnation, but out of the power of your love. May we seek to imitate your character, not because we are afraid, terrified of you, but because we know that you are good and great and powerful and that your way, your love is what we ought to imitate. Father, we pray uh, now that, that as we have sent out letters among the neighborhood, as people are either receiving them yesterday or they'll receive them tomorrow, invitations to come. We pray that, that we would create an environment here next Saturday, welcoming, encouraging, gracious, that imitates your way and your character, that, that people might have a desire to come and to know more about you. Father, we pray for gospel opportunities and for relationships to be built. And we pray that, that we would have an impact on this community that we live in, Lord, for your glory and for our joy. We pray your grace now on our time in your word, and we ask that you'd speak to us in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, we certainly live in a, in a culture that echoes what Jesus says here about the, the popular view of, of the day. This is, this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. He's doing this comparison of, of what the people say, what the people believe 
what the conventional wisdom is and then what, what his teaching is, the, the way and the, the, the lifestyle of the disciples. So uh, he, is, he is contrasting the way the culture is with, with how his followers are to behave. So they have heard it was said, you will love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Right? Maybe this is, this is just evident on a, uh, on a Sunday morning when, when uh, you know, we're, we're splitting up into our little football tribes. You know, like who, who's playing who and who are we rooting for and who are we rooting against? Uh, we, we had this, this moment, I think it was two weeks ago, maybe, maybe, um, yeah, maybe three weeks ago where uh, Max was wearing his jersey and I was wearing my jersey. I, I got my, my Packers jersey on and he's got his on and, and Hank's got his little uh, Redskins jersey on. He turns around, he looks and he says, wait, you guys aren't Redskins fans? Like, and he's, he like suddenly realized he wasn't part of the, part of the tribe. Um, so that uh, was kind of, kind of interesting. But, uh, but so, so we, might, we might experience that kind of friendly rivalry, right? You know, if you're, if you're in the cities like, uh, like Boston or New York, it can get pretty fierce there um, over, over, you know, sports teams and, and allegiances. Um, but maybe that doesn't rise to the level of, of, of antagonism that, uh, that we see in our culture. We certainly see that there's, there's quite a bit of antagonism uh, right now in our culture over whether or not you, you are going to vote red or blue, right? Uh, if you spent any, any amount of time on the internet and looked at what uh, people confess out of, the, uh, out of their heart, right? They say that out of the bucket of the mouth, right? You know, that the, that the well of the heart speaks, right? We, we look online and people are fierce, when it comes to this election, people move very quickly from you're wrong for liking this candidate to you should die online, right? You know, um, we believe in our culture, this is a, a core hidden value, even though we believe liberty and justice for all, we are very quick to go to, uh, I hate you because you think differently than me. That's, that's the culture that's being fostered, I believe, by political parties and particularly by the news media, who though they seek to escape guilt for agitating us, they are one of the primary means of, of doing it, of, of fueling people up and firing them up and getting them uh, crazy, frothing mad at one another. Uh, nevertheless, we are the ones who listen and embrace uh, this attitude. And it was no different in Jesus' culture. They heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, is that a quote from the Bible? Jesus has, has spent most of his time lifting up biblical teaching, drawing out a, a Bible teaching, and then, and then adjusting or correcting their interpretation of it. Leviticus 19.18 says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. And then he follows that up with a statement of his identity and his authority. He says, I am the Lord. This is, is important. It's a priority, is what he's saying. Now, he does not include this statement about hating your enemy. This is something that came to the people in that culture. This is a theological development for them. This is something that they arrived at after much testing and, and thinking about what the scriptures are saying here. And you can see this evidenced in, in Jesus' day in the Gospel of Luke. A lawyer, it says in chapter 10 of Luke, this is verse 25, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, right? Going to check your doctrine here. I'm going to ask you a theological question and see if you measure up, Jesus. He said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to this lawyer, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What's, what's the authority for Jesus and for the Jewish culture and for all of humanity? God's word. What, is it, what does it say in the law? The answer is in there. What do you think, Jesus says? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. Jesus would say in another place, this is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says, the second is like it. And this is what the lawyer goes on to say. He says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then says back to the lawyer, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, notice what happens here. Verse 29 of Luke 10. But he, this is the neighbor, 
desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The cultural distinction that, that had, uh, the, the theological position that had been arrived at is if you could define your neighbor, if you could figure out who uh, was your neighbor by biblical definition, then you were free to love them and ignore, be indifferent to your non-neighbors and then hate your enemies. Does that make sense? Neighbors, if you could figure out who they are, you're called to love. Non-neighbors, don't really need to think about them very much, but then you're free to hate your enemies. This makes sense in a world filled with pain and self-focus and conflict. In a world where we routinely encounter difficulty and, and we find people broken up into tribes and parties and factions, it makes sense that there are people that, that we would have a circle drawn around. You keep, you keep them close. And then there are those that, that we don't really have any interest in, interest in. And then there are those who are trying to, to contravene or, or contradict our values. And those are the people who, who we are against. Those are our enemies. Love, indifference, and hate. That makes sense. But it's not good enough for Jesus. He says this in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This, by the way, is not as simple as we might think of, of saying, well, I'm going to love that person, but I'm not going to like them. I'll just move them into the category of indifference, right? Jesus says that the command is active, love them. This is loving actions towards enemies, not just kind thoughts toward them. I will help my enemy when they are in need. The command is, is active when he says, pray. This is prayerful consideration of the one who is your enemy. Jesus defines enemies here as those who, who persecute you, those who actively cause you pain in some way, people who have caused you pain. For some, this might be parents, right? This might be relatives, brothers, sisters, uh, grandparents. It might be people we work with. It might be people we have, we've been involved with in either clubs or activities. It might be other Christians. Persecution uh, comes in both word and deed. You might think, well, there's nobody who's ever persecuted me. Well, uh, as we saw when we studied uh, those who are persecuted in the Beatitudes, uh, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, has defined uh, persecution as coming through both the tongue and the fist. When somebody speaks about you and, and, and the words come back to you and they beat you down or they insult you to your face, that is a kind of persecution. When, when somebody oppresses you physically, that is also persecution. And so we need to be careful here how we define people. People who have done these things to us qualify in Jesus' definition as our enemies. You might think, I have no enemies. But as we, as we go through this passage, as you, as you think about what Jesus is calling us to as a lifestyle for Christians, I don't want you to resist the, the Holy Spirit searching your heart and saying, this is the person you are not rightly related to. So change your attitude towards them. Um, if we're called to pray for our enemies, that might mean that we have to make a list at some point of people who we need to definitely carefully and surely pray for. Jesus doesn't say here that we're to wait until we feel like praying and then pray for our enemies. He says that we ought to pray for them. And that means that, that in a culture where we feel like, okay, when, when I feel an impulse to do something, then I know it's right and then I follow through and then I will pray. I think we, we ought to reverse that and say that Jesus is calling us to pray until we feel. Does that make sense? We're, we're called to, to, to pray and to engage and say, God, change my antagonistic, difficult, angry, bitter heart 
You might find yourself on the continuum somewhere. You might say, I'm not bitter, I've come to terms with it. Well, if you're being completely indifferent to that person, and if you saw them on the side of the road and their car was broken down and you were like, ha ha, you know, <laughs> they're your enemy. And, and you, need to, you need to pray for them and to, to warm your heart towards them and love them until you are in a position to act in a loving way towards them. John Stott, the Bible scholar, says this, If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, laziness, or prejudice could justify the silencing of our prayers? The verbs that are used in the New Testament to describe the crucifixion scene say that Jesus did not pray, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do while he was hanging on the cross, but while they were nailing him to the cross. And that it was something that he prayed continually throughout his crucifixion, the imperfect verb tense. Jesus continually prayed for those who were oppressing him. This isn't just an isolated bit of Jesus' ethic either. In Luke 6.35, he says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward in heaven will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Did you see that? God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. In the Old Testament, we see commands which are attempting, I think, to reflect the heart of God and to arrive at Jesus' ethic towards enemies. Exodus 2, Exodus chapter 23, verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you're to claim it as your own and say, oh, fortuitous day, right? No, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him, right? Don't take the goods. Don't empty the wallet and give the wallet back with the ID, right? You know, because you found your enemy's wallet. No, give it back. Proverbs 24, 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Proverbs 25, 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. The word that's used here for loving your enemies is, is not the, the Greek word for romantic love, which is eros. It's not the, the Greek word for uh, brotherly love, which is phileo. And it's not the uh, the comrade type love that you feel, storge, which is um, kind of the, the feeling of, of belonging that you have when you're part of a, of a team or a club. The, the word is, is, a, is a little known Greek word in, in those days. Uh, my, one of my professors described it to me this way. He said, he said that, that in, the, in the New Testament, Jesus landed on a word that was not used of uh, initially to describe love, because of Jesus' use of it, it has come to characterize love. This, this word agape is originally used in accounting. And it means that it's just a, it's just a determination, it's a decision. It's a, it's a saying, this is going to be my heart attitude. Now, now we might think love your, your enemies, that, that this is uh, to be a brotherly love. But let me say this, brotherly love, that's like, that's like I love you and you love me and, and we're just like going to give each other fist pounds and hugs and high fives, that will fade and fail in the face of persecution. Amen. That will go away. But... A, a love that is bounded by a decision, I will love this person, is unconquerable. John Stott has described this kind of love, which Jesus is describing as unconquerable benevolence, invincible goodwill. This, by the way, loving our enemies, doesn't mean that we don't speak up, right? Words truth expressed to those who are, who are doing wrong is an, a loving action to say, this is wrong and you ought not do it, can be in and of itself a loving thing. Uh, words 
can correct wrong, but actions must reflect love. So that's Jesus' command to us. Let's look at the the result. He says here in in verse 45, the first half, he says that we're to do this so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Why does he say it like that? And does that make anybody nervous? You know, does that that sense of, 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 of anxiety fill you where it's like, oh, in the past, I have not loved my enemy. Does that mean that I am not a son of, of, of the Father? Let me, let me walk through this. He says that, by the way, this is the character of God. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying, that this is what God's character is like. This is the way that God behaves. And so he's pointing out that we are sons of God when we act this way. So, so is he saying that when you don't act this way or if you refuse to act this way that you're not saved? Well, well no. Okay? Jesus, Jesus is, is, is pointing out to us that sons of the Father, notice that the, the, ver, the way this is phrased, it says, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, right? So uh, of your Father who is in heaven is, is making it possible for us to know, we know that we are sons of him if we've put our faith and trust in Jesus. But there is a distinction between being in an active sense, the sons of the Father, and not being them. We, we behave in a particular way that reflects God's character, and in that sense, we can say, I am acting like my father. I am being his son. He's not talking about present status. If you fail to love your enemy, God does not like, uncheck the box that says that you're going to heaven. And then you're like, oh, maybe I ought to fix this and love my enemy. And he's like, all right, we'll restore your salvation. That's, that's not the way it works. The Bible says he'll never leave us or forsake us. If we, if we put our, our faith and trust in him, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So our status and connection to him does not change. But our positive reflection of who God is and the way God calls us to live does change based on the way that we behave. And so we're to live in a way that positively reflects the character, attitude, glory, of God in such a way that people will say, that is a son of God. That's the way the sons of God live. Now, I want to point out, this is not a morality that works to get you ahead in the world. This is not one of Jesus' strategies for successful living, right? This is not, if you, if you live this way, your business will thrive you know, uh, your, your, your life will, will be nothing but sunshine and happiness. This is not his intent to get you to feel great about yourself. Instead, this is a different kind of ethic for those who embrace the kingdom of God, who embrace living a life for Jesus Christ. Jesus is in heaven reigning over the world at present. The book of Hebrews says we do not yet see all things submitted to his feet. Everything is, is not as God would desire it to be in the world, but his kingdom is alive and functioning here and now in the presence of his people. And those who are called down the Jesus road or to walk the Jesus way are called to live this way because this is the way of Jesus. While the world goes its own way, We're not looking around for suggestions and hints on how to live, but looking up. The stair step upwards of behavior in this, in this passage, Jesus is telling people, don't resist evil. Don't, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate uh, offering evil when evil has been offered to you. That was the last passage, what we looked at last week. He's, Paul would later say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We move from don't retaliate to love and pray for your enemies. Think about what happens in the book of Acts when, when Stephen is preaching to the religious authorities and they decide it is time to kill him for his stance on the law and the temple and Jesus. As they are throwing stones at him, taking away his life, It says, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he died. Why are we to live this way? Why is Jesus calling us 
to live this way, not to show our spiritual status. You know, we're not, we're not to live this way to say, see, this is a guarantee that I'm saved. But instead, we're called to live this way to increasingly become who we already are, the children of God. To, to grow in maturity, to reflect God's character even in the midst of a difficult situation. Not, this, is, this is not the way that we become sons, but to show us what sonship is like. Jesus lives this behavior preeminently in the crucifixion and in all of his trials and temptations, and he calls us to live that way too. Why does he call us to live this way? Because it reflects the character of God. That's where Jesus goes next in verse 45. He describes the character of God and he says that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Theologians call this the common grace of God. His repeated and prolonged favor to all, right? If it's a lovely morning outside, right? It's a lovely morning for everyone, isn't it? You know, last time I saw, uh, or last time I looked, the, the like individual rain cloud only shows up in cartoons. That little, that little bubble that flies over you and zaps you with lightning bolts, like that doesn't really happen in life. Now, occasionally, you might be like parked somewhere or, 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 you know, looking and it's like raining on that side of the field and not on this side of the field. Like that does happen, but, but pretty much the weather is consistent in, in an area. God sends his rain without discrimination. He gives good things to the evil and good things to the good. Whether or not we are in right relationship with him or wrong relationship to him, he is kind and benevolent to all human beings. Acts 14, 17 drives at this point. Paul is preaching and he says that God did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. When we are able to enjoy human interaction, when, when our stomachs are filled, when we're safe and secure and sleeping in our beds, when we've got shelter and clothing, we are enjoying the goodness and the benevolent kindness of God. And we ought not to think that the presence or absence of these things determines whether or not God is pleased with us. Romans 2.4 says this, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Are you, are you assuming that because you've got enough, that because the, the bank account has enough money in it, and because um, you know, all the bills are paid up to this moment, and the refrigerator's got enough food in it, are you assuming that you are in right relationship with God? We ought not to. Paul points out this in Romans 2. That, that we're to know that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God's character is to do good to all, no matter what their relationship is to him. God does not love only those who love him. He loves those who are indifferent to him, and he loves those who are his enemies. Now, this is what theologians call his common grace. It is not the same as his saving grace. And so don't assume that God's love is without distinction because God does call some into relationship with him. And this is a subject for another sermon, uh, another, another time. We could get into that later if you'd like. But when we, when we look at the testimony of the scriptures, God is kind to all. And so, in echo of his behavior, if we are his children, we ought to be kind to all as well, not just those who love us. And that's where Jesus moves next. He says this, if you, love only, if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. Bible scholar D.A. Carson says this, in loving his friends, a man may, in a certain sense, only be loving himself, a kind of expanded selfishness. Isn't that good? 
In loving him, no, it's not good, right? No, it's bad. Stop that. Don't do that. In loving his friends, a man may in a certain sense only be loving himself, a kind of expanded selfishness. I've got this friend, and I go to his house, we sit on the deck, and we watch, you know, the sunset, you know, and we eat oysters, and we do this, and we do that, you know, and it's like, well, what, what benefit is, is what, what good is it if, if I love that guy? Everybody does that. Everybody does what is good for them in their relationships. It's sophisticated selfishness. No, the character of love that is reflective of God asks the question, do I change my response to this person based on their response to me? Right? Leadership and submission and roles and all of these things, right? They only matter when there's conflict, right? Love only matters when there's conflict. The, the test of love is, is what happens when we disagree, when someone's done someone else wrong, when, when someone has defied or failed to deliver on expectations, when someone has hurt us, is our love reflective of the love of God? God's love does not change based on people's attitude toward him. It is constant and unchanging. And our love ought to imitate his. Jesus then says, if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. If the people that you approach and attempt to help and attempt to love are only those who, who you're like, yeah, this is my tribe, right? This is my, my clan, my squad, whatever you, hip word you want to use. Do we say hip anymore? I don't think we do. I do. Um, maybe that just proves the exact level of uncoolness that I operate at. If, if you're only friendly and loving and kind towards those who are kind to you, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do that. By the way, Jesus is using the, the Jewish insults. Tax collectors are those who had a contract with the Roman government, they were, they were allowed to, uh, to, to collect taxes for the benefit of, of the Romans. And it was basically like, here, you're supposed to bring in this amount of money through taxation. Thank you, my son. I appreciate that. And if you can get any more, go ahead and get it. So they, these, these folks would gouge their friends and neighbors. They, they were considered traitors. Uh, Gentiles, to the, to the Jewish people, were unclean. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul uh, uses the, the way that the, that the Jews referred to the Gentiles. He calls them dogs. That's the, way, that's the way that the Jewish people viewed them. Not God's people. Unlovable. Unclean. And yet Jesus is saying that they show this kind of self-protective tribal behavior as well. Love must do more. True love must actively engage and love those who we would consider our enemies. So what is, what is the path here? Jesus is, is pointing out that Christians should, must have a different ethic than the world. Christians must conform their hearts and their character to the character of God. Now, it's easy for God because his character does not change. God doesn't have good days and bad days. God doesn't experience the kind of pain of betrayal that we will experience when, when, we're, uh, when, when, when we are betrayed or damaged by somebody. God doesn't feel those things like we do, right? He's not surprised by things. He knows what will happen before it does. And so this is, this is harder for us because we battle with the flesh. We struggle. And so, so, so what's the call here? The call is to, to be embracing Jesus' command to, to love our enemies. This, this begins, I believe, with acknowledging God's standard. We confess our wrong. We, we realize, I was, I was considering, do I have any 
enemies. And I think that before God, I can honestly say that I have, con- that I, that I have, that I've forgiven everyone that I know I have an issue with. And yet, and yet, maybe you can identify with this, I will think back on difficult and painful things and the animosity will fire right back up. And so it needs to be suppressed again. It's like one of those candles on a birthday cake that you buy your kid when you want to torment them when they're a toddler. You know, that keeps relighting and the kid's like, what unjust world is this that I cannot blow this candle out? You know, heart, let it go right? But it keeps firing back up. And so, so it's acknowledging that God is right. I'm going to let this go, Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive. I'm going to extend forgiveness. And I believe that Jesus would call us first and foremost to pray. To pray for, for this list of names of people that, that we have a struggle with or who have wronged us or hurt us. And to pray for them. And to pray not just begrudgingly, but to pray for their spiritual and physical good and to move from prayer into action within the relationship if it exists. So let's draw this home. Who is it for you? What, what, must, you, what must you do? Maybe this is somebody that you work with or someone in your family that you will see on Thanksgiving or Christmas, or somebody that you have to interact with on a regular basis, and in your heart there is animosity towards them. What must you do? I believe that the Holy Spirit, if, if there is someone, the Holy Spirit has probably already drawn their, their, their name to your mind, and maybe that you're just kind of keeping it right out here, out of the corner of your eyeball, and you're not really wanting to, to make eye contact with it. You know who they are. Are they, are they on a list? You can, you can write that list, right, and put it in an envelope, and put that envelope in a book, and hide it from everyone else so that they won't judge you because you have enemies. But, but do you have a, a mental list of people that you're praying for? And you're saying, God, change my heart towards this person. God, help me to, to do good for this person. Help me to will their good. Help me to want their good. Help me to reflect your character. Have you, have you thought through the mechanics, not just of like a revenge fantasy, right? I think that comes natural to us, right? And then I will see them on the side of the road and smoke coming from their car, and I will be like, ha-ha! I knew it! It is good that they're in pain. Like, that sort of thing occurs now. I think our brain just creates those things. Don't judge me. (laughs) But have you thought through, what would it be like to have an encounter with this person where it went well? What will I say to them when I see them? How will I show grace? How will I show kindness? How will I show forgiveness? And I don't mean kind of a backhanded forgiveness where when we see them, we're like, hey, how are you? I've forgiven you for all the wrong things that you've done for me, to me. That's kind of like smacking them in the face. How do you genuinely, honestly, truly, kindly engage this person if the relationship still exists and serve them? What would it look like to be restored? Why do this? Jesus lays out the goal. Some scholars say that verse 48 is a summation of everything that Jesus has said in the last six uh, antitheses, the last six accounts that we've looked through, uh, or it is connected to this specific account, uh, this specific behavior of loving and forgiving our enemies. I think it makes the most sense to connect it to this section, although I think that some of the arguments for for why this this goal in verse 48 is connected to all six. But Jesus says that the reason that we embrace this behavior is because we are called to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. The goal is perfection. You might think, okay, well, that doesn't work because I'm not perfect, and he is perfect, and I cannot attain that kind of perfection. But, but let, me, let me walk through what I believe Jesus is saying here. 
Leviticus 19.2, God tells Moses, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be perfect, I am perfect. Be holy, I am holy. And then we find in other passages, Leviticus 11.44, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. Be holy, for I am holy. And then he says, do not defile yourself. I'm the Lord your God. I brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's in, in two verses in Leviticus 11. And then in Leviticus 20, 26, this is, this is where God is laying out the law and the standards for behavior. He's telling the people to reflect his character. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now, when we think, I cannot attain this level of holiness, and we look at the Old Testament law, we're thinking of, of holiness in terms of, of moral perfection of action, right? Never doing anything wrong, never sinning. And we disqualify ourselves. We say, I, I, I just, I don't know how I could be morally perfect. I can't, I can't do it. By the way, if you're thinking, no, I, I can. No, you can't. No, you can't. Stop. Stop that. This is a negative way of looking at the perfection that Jesus is prescribing here in this passage, though. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that, 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 that if, if a man is able to, to bridle his tongue, if he's able to gain control of his mouth, then he's a perfect man in all his ways because that takes the most control. James says that we all stumble. James also says, whoever keeps the whole law but falls in, fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. But that's looking at the law from its, its condemning point of view. The law is, is designed to convince us of our sin. Yes, that's true. But it's also there to positively point out the character of God and his behavior and how we're supposed to live. And so there is a negative approach to perfection that we cannot attain. We need to realize we need a savior, right? If, if, if we look at the law or we hear conviction, we say, I've not lived that way, there's good news. The good news is we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and he is perfect for us. We receive his righteousness and in that way we are made perfect. That's, that's, that's the approach to, to moral perfection that we ought to take. You're never going to be morally perfect in this life, ever. You're never going to, going to make it through a long stretch of time and say, I did not do anything wrong at all, nor should you feel like, like, like you need to live up to that standard. God's grace is there for you. But there is another kind of perfection, which I believe Jesus is telling us we can obtain, and which I believe is followed through in the New Testament. And that is a perfection of pursuing God's will, of loving like he does, of conforming ourselves to his character. This is a, a positive perfection. Think about it. This is, this is one of the things that it, uh, when, I, uh, when I teach over in Zambia, the students have a really hard time with. I spend like the first three or four days of my class wrecking and ruining the reputation of every Bible character, right? Moses, the murderer, you know, uh, Joseph, who, who brags to his brothers, you know, like the, the, the 12 forefathers of Israel, and they throw this guy in a pit, right? Jacob and um, Isaac and Abraham all have their problems with lying and with cheating on their wives, at least Abraham did, and so did Jacob, right? You know, they, they are not morally perfect. And so when I finally get to the life of David, and I then describe him as a man after God's own heart, they're, they're ready, and they're like, this is not a good guy. Yes, you are right. And yet, and yet, God says, I found in David a man after my own heart. How do we get that kind of banner hung over our life? How do we get that kind of applause from God? It's pursuing a moral perfection that comes from love. This is what Jesus is saying here. This kind of love, a love that is irrespective of, of who the person is, whether they are our neighbor, our non-neighbor, or our adversary, the kind of love that treats them all the same and pursues them is a kind of love that makes a man like God. Because this is the way that God loves. 
Satan comes in the garden and says, you can be like God by knowing what God knows, right? And he tempts humanity to sin. But man was already like God in the way that we are to be like God. He was like God in his moral capacity, his ability to love, his ability to, to be kind and to be good. What Jesus is saying here, I believe, is that the man who cares for the most men is the most perfect man. In the book of Exodus, chapter 12, God commands them and says, There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who lives among you. There is one way to live, and that's it. You don't, you don't break people up into different categories and treat them differently. James 1.25 says, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, this is the law of Christ, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, the person who, who acts on what he hears in the perfect law of liberty, he'll be blessed in all his doing. That's a, that's a, uh, a status of a statement of moral approval, of, of living after God's own heart, living the way that God calls us to live, blessed in all that they do. Now listen to this. Galatians 5.14. I'm going to slice this two different ways and then and close up. Okay? Paul says this in Galatians. The whole law, right? 633 commands. If you break one of them, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. Right? Judged. In need of a savior. That's the negative approach to righteousness. But the positive approach, listen, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. This is in your Bible, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. So don't come and say, I can't be perfect. Why are you saying that? It's right there. Galatians 5, 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's not one word. That's seven words, but, but it's a... It's, that word is, is a command. Now, let me, let, me, let, me, let me drive this home, okay? Listen to this. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything. Have no debts, Paul is saying, except this one to love each other. We are constantly in debt to the rest of our humanity. They, we, we owe them love. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is every other human being, particularly those who are in need. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What Jesus is saying here is pursue the character of God and love the way in which God loves. And in this sense, you will be perfect with a perfection that is attainable by humanity. Does that, does that, does that make sense? Right? The rules of the road, right? I'm out there driving in my car, Cops aren't stopping me constantly, right? You know, you know, you're in the left lane, you're in the right lane. No, the rules of the road are there like to, to, be, to be enforced when you break them, right? You're fine if you're, if you're getting on another road from the on-ramp, right? You know, but if you're going up the off-ramp, there's trouble. The law is there to stop you from doing that kind of stuff. But nobody's dominating you on the road and saying, do this, do that. You are free to drive. And that's what, that's what I believe the, the message here is, is if you are on the road and you are oriented rightly towards other human beings, if you're saying, I am going to love them and I'm not going to, to close my heart up, but I'm going to seek to pursue the righteousness that God's calling me to, I'm going to soften my heart towards those who've wronged me, I'm going to pray for them, I'm going to seek to serve them, I'm going to love them, I'm going to love all men the way that I love myself, I'm going to seek to attain this, Jesus would say, that is what I require of you. And you're good. Good. Check the box. You're good. What a relief that that's the standard. That doesn't mean it's easy. 
It means it's not, we're not juggling 600 rules and saying, how do I remain right before God? We're just saying, all I need to do is to love the people around me. That's tough. It's hard. People are sinful. I'm sinful. You're sinful. We protect our own. We've got our own interests. We know exactly what we want to happen. But God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is cultivating within us a deep inward righteousness of the heart where the Holy Spirit has written God's law. And we're called to reflect that character and to reflect that we are the sons of God, not in order to have a relationship with him, in order to have salvation, but in order to reflect that we do have it. This is the way that the children of God are to live. Let me close with this. Daniel 12.3 says this, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Jesus says that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. I pray that as we close, that just as God has made peace with you, you were born his enemy. You've attained righteousness and peace with God through the good news of Jesus' death on your behalf. In the same way, we ought to forgive those who have wronged us, who we have grudges against. We ought to love those who we find difficult to love to display a character like his so that we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace and your kindness. I pray that, that in all that's been said this morning and all that's been laid out, that there would be no sense that this, that this will be something that we can accomplish without the power of your Holy Spirit. It, it will not be easy, but it is right. And you call us to it because it is the standard by which you judge humanity. Did we love our neighbors as we loved ourselves? So, Father, I, I pray that you would help us to thaw the ice that, that chills our hearts towards those who have done us wrong. I pray that you would, you would help us to begin to pray for the good of those who have wronged us or whom we believe have wronged us. I pray that you would help us, Father, to think through what it would be like to be at peace and to pray for that end and then to act, and then to act in love, Lord, even contrary to, to the, 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 the us that lives in the pit of our stomach, in the back of our mind that wants something else to happen. We pray that our hearts would be united to fear your name and that we would pursue the good that you call us to, Lord, in Jesus. We pray that you would sustain our hearts and energize us to live in the way that you call us to for your glory and our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stay.